Good morning. Good to be with you. I, I've met a lot of you already, and uh, my name is Mark Colton. I'm the campus pastor at the Cedar Lake campus, and what a joy to be able to worship with you today and a privilege to share God's word. So glad to be here. You can turn to Psalm 73 in your Bible. That'll get you set there, Psalm 73. One of the passions I had growing up was the game of soccer. Yeah. I still enjoy to play it whenever I can. I truly love the sport. Four years ago, I played the most memorable soccer tournament of my life. It was an indoor tournament, and our team was Team Colton. I'm the oldest of five boys. All of us played soccer growing up. It's the only time we've ever had the opportunity to play us five brothers as a team. And so we played in this tournament indoor all night long. Because I'm the oldest, at this point I was 34, I had to show my brothers that I still had what it takes, that I could outlast them, I was still the best soccer player in the family, so on and so forth. It's about 11.15 p.m., this is the last game, we're almost done, and I'm still running like a madman because you know, hey, I'm still 20 in my mind, and all of a sudden I turn a certain way, and I hear a pop, and I tear my ACL, my meniscus, pull my calf, do a bunch of stuff. So it was a very memorable game, the only game we've ever played together and the only game in which I've suffered such severe injury. So I went to the doctor and the doctor gave me two options. He said, you know, you're not that old yet, but some people opt to just not get surgery and just decide to walk and never pivot, never play an intense sport again. And so you could do that or you could get surgery, go through the physical therapy and hope to play soccer again. Well, it was unacceptable to me to think of never playing soccer again. So, of course, I did the surgery, did the, you know, nine months of physical therapy. About a year or so later, I'm back, you know, I was back playing on the field. Was it worth it? For me, yes, it was. Because I love playing soccer that much. It was worth all the pain. It was worth the recovery from the surgery. It was worth all of that. And when we ask a question like that, when we say, is it worth it? What we mean by that question is, do the benefits outweigh the costs? The benefits that you'll receive, is it worth all the effort, all of the costs? Is it worth it? And every day we ask a series of worth it questions, right? Like, should I go to church today? Is it really worth it? What am I going to get there? Or should I wake up early tomorrow? Or should I exercise today? Or should I eat that piece of pie? Or whatever. We say, is it worth it? Every once in a while, we as Christians, we ask this type of question about following Jesus. Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Do the benefits of following Christ outweigh the cost of discipleship? And the author of Psalm 73 is in this very situation as we come to this text. Asaph is our author, and he wrote this text And he's asking this question, is it really worth it? So let's read it together. I'd ask you to follow along as I read. It's 28 verses. We're going to read through the whole thing. This is God's word, starting in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. 
They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with me. You hold me with your right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is God's word. Asaph wrote this psalm. He's written 12 psalms in our Psalter. And I don't know if you know much about Asaph, but he was a worship leader in Israel. So he led in the corporate worship. He would have known the scriptures. He was a man who sought the Lord regularly. And he penned this very honest description of where he was. And I stumbled upon this psalm when I was a teenage boy. You know, I was trying to be the good church kid. I was trying to do what I was supposed to do. And add on to that the fact that at a young age, I believed God had me to be in the ministry. So I, I'm looking forward to being a pastor someday, thinking I, I, have to, I have to live a certain way. I can't do that. I can't do that. Got to do this. And at one point as a teenager, I remember looking around at my friends, making choices that I was taught were unwise and sinful, but it seemed like they were sure having a whole lot of fun. And I started to wonder, you know, is, it, is this really true? Is it really worth it to live a righteous life? Is it really worth it to be pure in heart, to be pure with my body, to honor God in every aspect of life? Do the benefits really outweigh the cost? Would you look at verse 1? Verse 1 is a banner. Okay, verse 1, this is what Asaph says. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So it's as if Asaph is, is, is waving this banner, right? This is what I believe. I believe this is true, that God is good to his people. If you honor him, he takes care of you, he's good to you. It could say, it's worth it to follow God. Or at Bethel, we use the phrase, it's all about him. Right? If we had a banner outside, it'd probably say, it's all about him. 
And we make those statements sometimes, those bold statements of what we believe, and the very moment they leave our mouth, sometimes we wonder if it's really true in our heart. Is God really good to his people? Is it really worth it? I remember being a teenager, at one particular time laying on my bed and uh, what seemed like the thousandth time hearing my, pe- my parents argue and fight and talk about divorce. And this time it seemed real, right? And I remember distinctly having scriptures come to mind like Romans 8, which says, God works all things together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. And I remember kind of doubting that and saying, God, is that really true? Because I don't see how this could work out for my good, and I don't see how this could work out for your glory. There's no way, God. And so while I say I believe this, I'm really struggling to know whether it's true at this moment. But truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's worth it. And that's where we're going to land. We're going to get there at the end of the sermon, just like Asaph gets there. But first, I think it's important that we look at Asaph's deep struggle, because his struggle is our struggle. Asaph sees that it seems sometimes that living for God is not worth it. Sometimes it certainly seems that living for God is not worth it worth it. There's really two alternatives, two paths here, right? Living for God or living for yourself. And he's looking around at people who are living for themselves. And at this point in his life, he's just not sure if it's worth it. Living for yourself is a functional atheism, as if there is no God, I'm just living for me. And there's a lot of people in America today that would claim they don't believe there is a God, right? They've convinced themselves that there's no God. But more than that, There are more people in America that think there's a God somewhere doing something cosmically, but he's not so much concerned with my everyday life stuff, right? Like he doesn't care what I wear or where I go on the internet or how I work. He's he's somewhere distant. A functional atheism. There's two options here, living for God and his glory or living for yourself as if there's no God. The real question is, is living for God worth it? Is it actually worth it? to live for him. Living for yourself seems rewarding, verse three through five. It sure seems rewarding when you look around at some people in the world who live for themselves and they try to, try to establish a life for themselves and they accomplish it. Notice verse three and 12, the psalmist says, look at them, they're in prosperity and they increase in riches. They have this wealth. See if you can fill in this blank. Money can't buy Happiness is what most of us think of, right? I found a Huffington Post article that said 10 specific ways that money can buy you happiness. I read it. It It's interesting. Uh, Many people believe that today. Uh, Bo Derek said, whoever said that money can't buy happiness simply didn't know where to shop. Or uh, a more relevant one would be, whoever said money can't buy happiness never ordered something on Amazon and got it the next day. And I just saw the other day they have these little buttons you can push. You're out of toilet paper, push the button, boom, it shows up. Like, not that instant, but days later, which is amazing. I also saw this in a house. Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy marshmallows, which are kind of the same thing. We laugh at these these, uh, quotes, but in our heart of hearts, we, if we're honest, sometimes wonder about this, right? Like, I don't know, maybe money can buy happiness. I'd sure like to try. We wonder, is it worth it to have integrity in my financial dealings? Is it worth it to be honest 
on my taxes and in everything that I do with my monies? Is it worth it to be generous, to give of, of my finances to further the kingdom of God, to take a portion of my paycheck, 10% and give it to the church? Is that really worth it? There's a whole lot of people that aren't doing that and they seem to be enjoying that money. So they have money, these godless individuals. And then notice verse 4, their bodies are fat and sleek. Kind of hard to know how you could be fat and sleek. But in this day and age, uh, when this was penned, fatness was a sign of opulence, of wealth, of comfort. So they have the perfect body, but they have all the money they could want and all the comfort. Is there a focus on the body in America today? Yeah, there always has been, but now more than ever, it's amped up, right? I mean, whether you're 13 or you're 33 or whatever age you are, there's this pressure put on you to look a certain way. You walk down the grocery aisle and you see these beautiful images of people, and we know they're airbrushed. Somewhere in our head, we know that, but we sit there and go, well, it'd be nice to look like that. I tried really hard. can't get those abs. What's going on? So Asaph is looking at people who have the perfect body and they're in comfort as I think about this focus on the body, you know, we can be guilty of this. We can look at others and say, I just wish I looked like that. Some people have made their body, their, their temple, their, their religion. I, I read an article this morning. It was, it was called, uh, what was it called? It was called the Church of CrossFit. That was interesting. And it was talking about how people are, are finding a sense of belonging that, in that. And that, that as, our, as our culture gets a little less religious... It becomes focused in some religion, and in this case, these individuals sometimes focus on the body. But there's this, there's this wonder sometimes about, okay, I know God wants me to treat my body a certain way. I know that he wants me to honor him with it, but is that really what's going to bring happiness? I remember being a young man, and this is just being really honest with you, being a young man and saying, I know God wants me to be pure in my body, but I wonder if that's not really happiness. Right? Or, or some of us are always searching for that happiness where we go online, hoping that, you know, if I can just do what I want with my body and look at who I want to look at and have a relationship with who I want to have a relationship with, that will bring me happiness. Verse 5, not only are they rich, great bodies, verse 5, they're carefree. They're not in trouble. It seems that they don't have a care in the world. They couldn't care less about God, but they have all this freedom. In youth ministry, uh, during the years of youth ministry, one, one time I had a student say to me, Mark, I, Pastor Mark, I, I think or I feel that being a Christian is like living in a concentration camp. And it, I don't know if he knew his history. That's a really crazy statement to make if we think about that. But what he was essentially saying was it's like prison to be a Christian kid. Some of you grew up in that environment and you know exactly what he means. You feel like every, all your other friends that can do whatever they want, uh, it would be nice to be like that. To have that freedom to do what we want when we want it. But I want you to look at verse 3. These, these wicked people are rich, they're prosperous, they are carefree. But I want you to notice verse 3 because there's a word here that blew me away when I, when I studied it. Verse 3 has the word prosperity. If you, if you dig into this a little bit, many of you have heard the, the uh, Hebrew word shalom, right? It's a very familiar word to us if we've been around the church for a while. And it, it's a really beautiful word. It's a rich word. It means restoration or wholeness or healing. 
And really what shalom is, is it's the, it's the restoration of everything that we lost at the fall. As Adam and Eve decide to sin, and as they fall into sin, and relationships are broken between God and man, ever since that point, human beings have been desiring restoration, right? A, a peace or wholeness. And Asaph is saying, I'm looking at these wicked people, and I'm not so sure they haven't found shalom. You realize how crazy that is? Here's a man who leads worship. He knows what shalom is. He knows that it's not a temporary fleeting pleasure. He knows that it's salvation, that it's redemption. And yet he just wonders, maybe that's found in living for yourself. And I, for one, appreciate Asaph's honesty, don't you? That he would say, you know, I know what, I know what the scriptures say, but sometimes it might it might seem that salvation and, and wholeness and restoration actually comes in living for yourself. And this temptation is more powerful today than ever before because we have social media and you scroll through Facebook or Instagram and what do you see? All these amazing lives, right? I, I looked up the 25 most followed Instagram accounts. Rich people, famous people, good-looking people, and if you, if you look at that stuff long enough, you start to wonder, I would really like to be that guy. I'd really like to be that girl. I'd like to look like that. I'd like to experience that or go on that vacation. And if we're not careful, envy will creep in. And like Asaph, our hearts will begin to be filled with envy. Living for yourself seems rewarding, and it also seems empowering, verses 6 through 12. These people, verse 6, pride is their necklace, violence a garment. They do what they want to do and they do it proudly. They're proud of their pride. They wear it on their sleeve. They have a reputation and everyone knows about them. Several years back I met a, a man from Chicago, inner city Chicago, and he was involved in, in gangs and he was a drug dealer. God radically saved him one day. And he told me in our conversation, I, I wanted to know more about that and he shared. And he said to me, Mark, the hardest thing for me to give up was not the, the drugs, the hardest thing was not to give up was not the money. The hardest thing to give up was not the cars or the women. Or, so the hardest thing to give up was my reputation. I would walk onto the street and everyone knew who I was. And it really hurt to lose that. And that's the situation of these individuals in Psalm 73. They have a reputation. Everyone knows who they are and they, they wear it proudly. And they're in control, verses 7 through 9. They're the master of their own universe. They do whatever they want to do. And they speak loftily against the heavens. And they say, does God even know? God doesn't even care or know what's going on down here, if there is a God. It's as if there are these demigods, you know, and they look down upon all the plebes of society. So Asaph is wondering, is humility really worth it? I mean, the meek shall inherit the earth, Psalm 37. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Is that really true? Because it seems like the meek are getting crushed everywhere. Everywhere I look, the humble, the meek are taken advantage of. Is it really worth it? And so Asaph sees the way these godless people are living. He wishes he was rich. He wishes he had the good looks. He wishes he had a comfortable lifestyle. It's a battle of the heart. Asaph is really struggling in his heart. That's what's going on here. Look at verse 2 and 3. His faltering steps can be traced to his heart, right? He, he almost stumbled. He nearly slipped. He almost fell away from God. Why, why didn't he? Because of God. We'll see in a second. But look at verse 3. The reason he's stumbling is because of his heart. He's starting to get filled with envy. He's, he's starting to wish he had something else. 
And before one stumbles in their Christian walk, their heart slips first. Right? Before you ever fall away from God, before you ever walk away, your heart is slipping first. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Maybe your heart is there this morning. It's starting to slip and you're starting to wonder. So the remedy must start in the heart too, verse 21 and 22. We'll look at that in but a moment. But I want you to see the, the theme of the heart in Psalm 73. It's all throughout this text. Verse 1, a pure heart. Verse 7, a heart overflowing with folly. Verse 13, the futility of a well-kept heart. Verse 21, an embittered heart. 26, a failed heart and a strengthened heart. And one theologian has said, this is a tale of a heart seduced and then healed. And as Asaph, as his heart is filled with envy, as it struggles and as it slips, he's brought to despair. Verse 13 is really the crux here, right? And essentially what he says, if you paraphrase verse 13, is basically, what's the point? What's the point of living for God? What in the world is the point? I've done it all in vain. It's worthless, like Ecclesiastes. It's meaningless. In verse 21, there's two colorful word pictures that he uses to to help us understand where his heart was, how much despair had overtaken him. Look at verse 21. He says, my soul, or you could translate this heart, was embittered. That word means leavened, soured, or fermented. So what's happening in his heart is sin, like leaven, is taking over, and it's, it's becoming this fermented, disgusting mess in there. You ever been there? Ever had that envy and that bitterness take over? And he says, he was also pricked in heart, like knives or, or arrows are going into his heart. And I wonder, have you ever seen somebody else succeed and it was painful to you? Oh, they got that car? <laughs> they just got that house? Their kids did that? Ouch, that hurts me. Well, why is that? It's because our hearts are filled with envy. We can all identify with that, but I want you to consider that this is pathetically self-absorbed. Very selfish. What we are saying in that moment is this. We're saying, God, what's in it for me? I've been doing all this. I've been trying to keep the rules and do what's right, and what do I get out of it? Seems like nothing. Everyone else is getting the stuff. I'm not. And for the first time, in verse 15, Asaph breaks out of his claustrophobic little selfish world, and he starts to look around, and what does he see in verse 15? He remembers there are other Christians out there. And he says in verse 15, you know, if I would have talked like this, I would have betrayed other believers. I would have hurt God's people. And then through the rest of the chapter, he takes his eyes off himself and he looks at God and who God is. And if this morning you're realizing that your relationship with God has been self-focused, I implore you to do what Asaph did, to repent. To repent. That's what's needed. What is repentance? Well, repentance begins with realizing our true state, our how sinful we really are. What does Asaph say about himself? He says he's like a beast. I was like an animal before you, God. I was so sinful. This is where I was. How devilish it is to discount, to disparage our relationship with God, to act as if the relationship we have with God is worth nothing or but a little. And I say it's devilish or it's satanic because this is what Satan did in the garden. Right? I mean, Adam and Eve are walking with God in intimacy. I mean, no one's ever walked with God that close. In perfection, 
They're in the garden. And what does Satan say? Satan says, God's really keeping this from you. You should feel slighted. Everything that you have walking with God in this perfect paradise, you should feel ripped off, Adam and Eve. That's what Satan does to us today. Yeah, you have God and you have the church and all of that, but this is what you really want, right? It's the same age-old temptation. It shouldn't surprise us that we're capable of this level of blasphemy because we're not as righteous as we think we are. And this whole dilemma of, you know, God, why do I as a righteous person suffer when the wicked over here seem to be prospering? It's kind of weird to begin with because how righteous really am I? I'm a sinner saved by grace. And the only righteousness that I have is because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So for us to sit there and go, God, what's the deal? I've done all this stuff and really, it's all in Jesus Christ to begin with. So repentance begins with realizing how sinful we are. And then it's complete when there's a change of mind, change of heart, a change in direction. That's what repent means. A paradigm shift. What Asaph needs is a paradigm shift. Some of you today, you need a paradigm shift. You need to change the way that you're looking at the world. And the thing that snaps Asaph back from his despair is when his perspective is shifted. In verse 17, when he comes into God's presence. When he spends time with God, then... He has a change of mind, a change of perspective, a change of paradigm. And Asaph sees that things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. Because sometimes it seems that living for God is not worth it. Things are not as they seem. Like a stick or a rod that you would put in the water and it appears crooked, but we know it's not crooked, it's just the appearance. So it is when we look at things in this world we can't possibly understand the justice of God. We can't possibly see things from his perspective and see it all in order and understand the beginning from the end in all of eternity. It's like picking up a piece of newspaper with, you know, a couple of words on it. It's ripped off and we don't know what was before it. We don't know what was after it. We can't understand it and that's how life is often. You know, we look around and we see what's happening and we, we try to square it with this and it's hard. And so... We need to get a different perspective. We often focus on someone's outward success. We forget about their inward turmoil. We think about what they're going through right now, but we forget about eternity and what they face one day. When the wicked prosper, consider this, that it sets them up for an even harder fall in eternity. Because those individuals are going to go from what is the very best in this life to experience, and they're going to slide right into eternity apart from God with suffering that they could never even imagine. Charles Spurgeon compared it to the criminal who ascends the stairs to be hanged. And as he is exalted above everyone else, no one's envying that man because they know what his fate is. Or George Swinnick who said, the fish in the eagle's clutches. The eagle grabs the fish and carries it up on high only to dash it on a rock and eat the fish. We know their end. When we look at the scriptures, we understand that those who run away from God and reject God, that's their end. And the happiness and the success of the wicked is but a dream. It's a phantom. It's a mirage. It's not what it seems. Think about, you know, if you get on YouTube and you watch any popular music video, almost any music video today, how does it portray the sinful lifestyle? Pretty attractively, right? Pretty attractively. That is nothing but a mirage. 
Because one day we're going to wake up in eternity and that's going to be gone. We must humbly come to God. So, so when we look around in the world and we see things that don't compute with what we know Scripture to say, we must come to God and humbly grab his hand, verse 23, right? He holds us with his right hand and just say, Father, I'm trusting in you because I, I don't get what's happening in the world around me. I don't understand justice. Seems unfair to me, but I just rely on you, God. You're in control. And the nearer that we will get to God, the, the more we come to his side and we spend time in his presence, we'll start to see things as they really are. We'll start to see that the shiny allure of sin is not all that it is cracked up to be. That what comes after that shiny allure is death. And when we spend time with God, we're see, we'll, we will see that living for God is worth it. And that's what Asaph saw, right? I mean, in verse 17, he gets a new perspective and then the, the rest of the chapter is living for God is worth it. It really is. It doesn't seem like it sometimes. Things are not as they seem. Living for God is worth it. Living for God is worth it in heaven and on earth. I want you to see both of those. In heaven and on earth. First in heaven, verse 19 and verse 27 talks about this destruction that the wicked will face one day. After this life, it will face destruction. And if you're in Jesus Christ and you're following God, you never have to be, worry about being destroyed ever. You will never face the destruction of God. And by the way, this destruction is because of God's justice. So we look around and we say, where's the justice, God? I don't understand it. Well, that justice is coming one day. And those who are in Christ will never face the wrath and the judgment of God like these wicked will. So we will escape destruction. Is it worth it? Yes, it is. We'll be free from fear, verse 19, terror, have you ever been terrified, so afraid, so scared? You could only describe it as terror. As I think back through my life, I, I believe the, the most terrified I've ever been, some of you can identify with this, is when you get that phone call that that loved one has just died or is in the process of, of passing away. And isn't that terror that takes over your heart, that fear that just grips you? And yet this is a terror that is worse than even that because you will awake one day in eternity only to realize you never can see God. You're separated for all eternity from him. That is terror. But you and I, if we're in Jesus Christ, we don't have to face that fear. We don't have to face the terror that the wicked will experience. So we'll escape destruction. We'll be free from terror and fear. And we'll never be despised by God. Verse 20. Can you imagine being despised by God? It's what the fate of the wicked is. Does God love the wicked? Yes, he loves the wicked, scripture says. But he also despises them at the very same time. I don't understand how that's possible, but scripture says it's true. To never be despised by God. See, I, I live with that peace to know that God will never look at me and say, get away from me. Never. He's gonna welcome me in his arms. Welcome me home as a son. Is it worth it? To live for God, absolutely it is. In heaven, it's worth it. The destiny of the wicked is separation from God for all eternity. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth is gonna be amazing. It's gonna be amazing. I personally think that I'm gonna ride on a pterodactyl, okay? Uh, I don't know if it's possible, but in my mind it is. I've asked God for that, we'll see. But the new heavens and the new earth are everything that we love about this world and nothing that we hate, 
But more than any of that, the greatest thing about heaven is that we will have God. Verse 25, right? We will have God. In eternity, who have I in heaven but you? So pterodactyls aside, I will have God and God is my portion. That is what we're looking forward to. So is it worth it? You bet it is to have God in heaven. As you come through Psalm 73, there is a spirit here of pilgrimage. It's kind of this idea of, hey, we're pilgrims passing through this earth. And while life doesn't seem to work out for us sometimes as Christians, one day in heaven, it's going to be worth it. But living for God is not just worth it one day in heaven. Living for God is worth it here now on earth. So yes, we're pilgrims, but we're also called to live here, to live in joy and hope and to make a difference in this world while we're here. And the psalmist tells us, hey, even now, it's worth it to live for God. We right now have a close relationship with God. Verse 23 and verse 25 and verse 28, there's an intimacy, this closeness that we can experience with God the Father. We desire God, verse 25. Verse 28, we come near unto God. Now, Asaph knew that the only way he could come near to God was because there would one day be a sacrifice for sins. One day, there would be a Messiah. And he didn't understand all that that meant, but he knew that something, one day, someone would take care of his sin problem. And you and I, when we have, we have all of Scripture, and we know that's Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross in my place so that I could come near into God's presence. The, the curtain was torn, right? We can come right into God's presence. We can talk with him even now. We don't have to wait till heaven. Is it worth it? Yes, it is right now on earth. Verse 24, we have God's guidance. He guides us through this life. I want you to raise your hand if you've ever felt like you needed guidance. Or right now you feel like you need some guidance. Some people are honest. Okay, good. I need, I need guidance. I need guidance to be a parent. Anyone, anyone identify with that, right? I need guidance to be a husband. I need guidance to know how to do ministry. I need guidance every single day. And God is my guide. He, he walks alongside of me. He guides me by my right hands. It's worth it to live for God right now to have that guidance. We have hope, verse 24. And please don't underestimate this. To have the hope that you know when you close your eyes for the last time, and you wake up, you'll be with God, that is something you cannot put a price tag on. And many people today don't live with that hope. They, they just don't know. I mean, I don't know what will happen. Maybe, maybe I'll be all right. Maybe I won't. We have hope. If we're in Jesus Christ, we know that we will live again, that the resurrection proves to us that we will, we, we will live forever. And we have hope. God is our strength, verse 26. He's our fortress, our rock. These are all benefits of serving God, of living for Yahweh, as Asaph sees, right now. Life is full of ups and downs, and God's going to carry you through all of them. Look at verse 1 and 2. If you consider why did Asaph not fall, verse 2. I mean, he almost slipped. He, he nearly slid away from God and gave up. Why not? Well, verse 1, because God is good to his people. Because of God's goodness, because of God's covenant love, God kept him. God was his strength. God is our strength. And the same thing is true for you and I. If we're children of God, the only thing that keeps us from falling is God's hold on us. He holds us. He's got us. If it weren't for God, we would have fallen off the Christian wagon a whole long time ago. My daughter reminded me of a story the other day in which my dad and me and Adam and Josh, the next in the line, us four were in a pickup truck, all in the cab, right? 
And it was my dad's company vehicle, which a company vehicle sounds nice, right? Until you've seen my dad's company vehicle, which was rusted apart, nothing worked, doors would randomly open, which was the case this day. We were driving through town. It was a very slow, you know, slow turn. Well, actually, my dad drove like a maniac, so maybe it wasn't that slow. But we came around the corner, and as we drove around the corner, the door, passenger door, flew open. And what happens? My brother Adam, whoop, out the door. My brother Josh, whoop, right out the door. Me, I held onto the gear shift. I was like, I'm not going, I'm not going out of this truck. And looking back, I'm pretty confident my dad actually grabbed a hold of me. I, I texted him the other day and asked him, he's like, I think I did. I can't imagine my dad just being like, oh, hey, God, see ya. But my dad could only do so much, right? And I, I, I'm pretty confident he grabbed my arm. But as I thought about this story, I was thinking about uh, spiritually as well. And out of the three of us brothers, my two other brothers that I just mentioned have walked away from the Lord. They don't believe in what they were raised. They don't follow God right now. And what is it that has kept me this whole time? Is it my tenacity to hold on? No, it's the Father who has held me. It's the goodness of God. It's the loving kindness and the covenant love of God. I've been through trials in my life. I know some of you have been through more. You've been around longer. But God has kept me through that whole time. Sometimes I think he allows us to lose some of the creature comforts in order so that we might say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's worth it if I have Christ. Notice that we have the portion, verse 26. God is our portion forever. What is our portion? What is our inheritance in Christ? We're adopted we're, we're brothers of Christ. That, that's amazing. We, we have the righteousness of Jesus. That's our portion. Jesus is our portion. Before I close, I just want, want to remind you of one last thing, and that is this, that doubt is not the enemy. Doubt is not the enemy. I mean, verse, if you look through this whole chapter, what we learn is that doubt is not ultimately the enemy because, let's be honest, all of us doubt at some time or another. Right? All of us. Here's a worship leader. He says, I was doubting. I'm a pastor, I've had my doubts. We all do. Doubt's not the enemy, but even in our doubt, we must be careful even how we speak. I mean, he says, if I would speak thus, I would have betrayed God's people. So let's be careful. Let's doubt, but let's go to God. I mean, look at the psalmists. As you read through the book of Psalms, notice that there are times of intense doubt, but they always go back to what they know, and that is that God is in control and that I can trust God and I can worship God and he's worthy of my praise no matter what. And it's, it's like the rock climber who's faltering and, and, and reaches out and grabs a hold of that sturdy rock. That's verse one, right? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I believe that God, I'm holding on to that God. I believe only help my unbelief. And that's what we do. We continue to just hold on by the grace of God. For me, Romans 8.32 has been that one of those anchors those rocks for me and Paul is writing he says he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also give us all good things and so in the times of my life where I've struggled the most and I can't see clearly and it seems like a thick fog around me I just grab a hold of that and say God you gave me Jesus aren't you going to give me all things not everything I want (laughs) but he's going to take care of me he's going to sustain me he's going to keep me when I'm slipping And so that's what our theology does. It allows us to hold on like that. The gospel reorients us. That's what it does. When we think about Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and the gospel, it it shifts our paradigm. If you look at the cross, I mean, in that moment in history, did it not seem like evil prospered? 
Certainly so. The disciples could have ran away and they could have read Psalm 73, right? Because the wicked are prospering and the most righteous man to ever live just got killed. The things are not always as they seem. We need a paradigm shift. Even if we lose everything else, we have Christ. You could have everything. And if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. Conclude, conclude with this. Being pure in heart, verse 1, it's worth it. It is worth it. Ultimately, each one of you in here need to decide whether you believe it's worth it. Some of you may not even be Christians yet. You've been, you've been pondering this. You've been saying, is it worth it to follow Jesus? I'm kind of checking it out. Some of you are Christians and you've had your doubts. It is worth it. Just one man's perspective here. Okay, two men's perspective, Asaph too, right? It's worth it through my life, through what I've experienced, lows, highs. Man, is it worth it to know that Jesus Christ is my portion, Would you prefer to live a humble, seemingly insignificant life with God as your portion or a pleasurable, enviable life without God? Really, that's the the question, right? There are two paths. Pastor Steve preached several weeks back from Psalm 1. There's the tree planted by the river of water and then there's this chaff that the wind drives away. Two paths, two choices. The sons of Korah who were also worship leaders They said this in Psalm 84, they said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Is that true for you today? Which do you prefer more, God's favor or the favor of man? The pleasure of God or the pleasure of sin? And if we say in our heart, it's worth it, this is my banner, you know, truly God is good to his people, we need to be prepared to live in such a way. And when we have our doubts, go to God. Be honest about those doubts and seek his face and ultimately ask him for repentance, the gift of repentance. Then in those moments of despair, which we all have, some of you are there today, some of you will be there in a week or in a month or in a year, I'll face doubts again. We can hold on to Christ. So in just a moment, we're going to sing a song and and Kimmy's gonna come out and she's gonna lead us. And as she begins to, uh, after I pray, as she begins to pick and just play the guitar, I would ask you to just take a moment And let this be an opportunity for you, wherever you are, if you're on the precipice like Asaph, if you you read this text and you say, man, this was for me today, this is where my heart is, my heart is slipping, then take that moment to just beg God for repentance, for for a shift, a paradigm shift. Beg him for that. And if you're not a believer and you've been, you've been evaluating this whole thing, you've been wondering, let me just challenge you, implore you, today is the day of salvation. Uh, It's worth it to have Christ as your portion. And even if everything's going wonderfully, there's gonna come a day where you're gonna be on this precipice too. So you ask God to prepare your heart and to bolster you for that. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for Psalm 73. What a text, Lord. We, we, we appreciate your honesty, God, that you would, you would put this in the, in the scriptures, that you would allow Asaph to be so honest, God, that you wouldn't make us think that it's all roses, all rainbows. God, there are dark times. There are times of doubt. We've all been there. Lord, I pray for somebody in this room. Maybe they are on the precipice. Maybe their heart is slipping and they need this scripture today. God, I pray that they cry out to you and that you would remind them and confirm to their hearts that it's worth it. It's worth it to have Jesus Christ. None of that other stuff is gonna last. It's all a mirage. Lord, for the unbeliever in here today who 
has been counting the cost of discipleship, I pray that today they would submit and they would surrender their hearts and they would trust in you, God, because it is worth it. And Lord, for the believer who came in here rejoicing, knowing that it's worth it, I pray that you would continue to protect them and keep them and guard them because days will come when we will doubt. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.